0: Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 1 11 a.m. Sunday night, Monday morning, and I'm uh, excited for you to listen to this one. Um, we have been kind of in a, some would say like kind of weird couple weeks, like the subjects, the 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 subjects of the messages have been strange and not something that I would ever look at like on the service and be like, Yeah. I'm stoked to hear a message about that. But Hannah's amazing. Like, I was thinking to myself today whenever I get to go up and do the welcome, I do it after the band. And since the band is like the most recent thing to have just happened in the service, I always like freak out and gush about how amazing they are because they are amazing. And I love being able to be a part of like helping uh, our people to experience such amazing musicians doing really cool songs and so I'm always like oh my gosh wasn't that amazing give it up for the band again anyway today I found myself kind of wishing that sometimes I could do the welcome after Hannah because I want to say the same things about her and I never really get the chance to because I'm always just talking about the band so Hannah you rock Um, I'm so proud to be doing this with you Uh, I think you're super talented and you've been knocking it out of the park lately so keep it up Okay. What are we talking about today? Methodism apparently, which as you'll hear, she kind of makes fun of me for being Methodist, even though I I don't really consider myself Methodist, but that I, I grew up in a Methodist church. Um, so we talk about like some of the good reasons that that particular faith tradition was started and how maybe the American church as a whole got away from some of those things. Anyway, I don't want to steal her thunder too much. Uh, but, Don't uh, look away because you think it's kind of a weird subject. I promise you're really going to like this one. Um, Yeah, so we're going to talk about Methodism. Before we get there, two events I just want to make sure you're aware of. Number one, this coming Sunday, we're doing a sound healing. There is a, a guy who goes to different. His name is Caleb. If you've ever been around, I'm sure you've probably met him. He's awesome. He's in the Tampa small group with me. Shout out to Tampa small group. Uh, He has been a part of uh, a sound healing before, and he wanted to kind of share it with the rest of the church. So we're doing it Uh, this Sunday after church. It's free. Um, If you come in person, please stick around. Uh, Maybe bring a yoga mat um, so that you can just kind of chill and relax. Uh, He's also going to provide some free food. So it's going to be a great time. Uh, Shout out to Caleb for bringing that to us. Also, we are going to go see Scott Erickson. It's kind of like a TED Talk slash sermon slash art show. Um, I'm really pumped about it. Uh, go to diff.church and you can click on the link to go buy tickets. They are 20 bucks and that is going to be a blast. Okay. Uh, again, as always, thank you so much for listening and for being a huge part of what we do at, at, uh, at Different and um, you're the best. All right, here's Hannah.
1: We have been talking about possibly weird, intense stuff for the past few weeks, and guess what? Today is no different. Today we're talking about Methodists. (laughs) It's the most interesting topic in the world. Um, I'm kind of joking, but only kind of, because I am a nerd. So it is pretty interesting to me. So we're going to start with a history lesson, because in 1492, Columbus, no, that's a different history lesson. That's a whole lesson about colonialism that we don't have time to get into today. In 1739, much better year, uh, an Anglican priest named George Whitfield was like, I am tired of this crap. I'm paraphrasing. Um, (laughs) He found two brothers named John and Charles Wesley, and he was like, hey, do you want to come help me preach the gospel where people actually need it? Not in some stuffy old church from a pulpit, but in like a field where the actual people are guess everyone was in a field at that time. Um, And they were like, yes. So George and John provided the preaching and Charles provided the music and it was music the regular people could relate to. Uh, Like down to earth beats and beautiful lyrics and uh, good melody, like songs with feeling that you would sing in a pub. This is from a reporter of that time. Songs with feeling you would sing in a pub. Just hold that in your mind. Now, like, Charles Wesley is known for the massive amount of hymns he wrote. Like, people sing them to this day. And some of them are, like, incredibly beautiful and incredibly meaningful. And I find it hilarious that that is what was considered good music with a good beat in the 1800s. Like they were like, oh, do you know what music sucks? The church music. Instead, we need these hymns like "Christ Our Lord Is Risen Today." <laughs> good music with a good beat. <laughs> so you know, just be glad you didn't live in the 1800s and you got to hear Ghandis sing today. Um, Jared is a Methodist, that's why he said he knew that song instantly. It was like, oh, the song of my people. <laughs> <laughs> So one reporter was like, something crazy is going on. I have to go report on this. So he goes and he finds John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. They're in a field. They set up. And he describes this scene outside of a coal mine where all the miners are getting off of work and they're on their way home after a day of like backbreaking, low paying, lung destroying, soul destroying work in a mine. Like they're covered in coal dust and they're dirty and they're tired and they're probably going to go drown their sorrows with alcohol because that was pretty common And then that would lead to other sad outcomes, such as beating their wives. And these are not my words. (laughs) This is like the words of the reporter. The other sad outcomes, such as beating their wives. (laughs) So they get off work, and then they hear this guy preaching in a field. And they're like, hmm. This powerful voice caught their ears. And he, like, the crowd kept growing. Um, I don't know if you know anything about coal mines, but only a few people can come out at one time because they're very small and narrow. So it just kept growing, more people kept coming. And Wesley spoke so passionately to them. He spoke about God, a God, the God, who wanted to help them and actually love them. And he wanted to communicate with them and all like have a connection with them, even though they got drunk all the time, even though they gambled away what little money they had, even though they mistreated their wives and their children, God still wanted to have some kind of relationship with them and, like, actually cared about them as humans. And the reporter noticed that, like, half of these people started crying, like, silently, because it wasn't allowed. But, like, he could see on the black coal dust on their faces these pale, like, tear tracks. And it didn't stop there, like so much modern revivalism does. Like, here's a great emotional experience, and then we're going to pass the offering plate, and good luck with your life. Um, It didn't stop there. The Wesley's organized a whole thing for these people to get into. So they organized them into groups and small groups were called bands and larger groups were called classes and the biggest groups were called societies. Don't judge them. It's the 1800s, okay? They didn't have catchy names. They also did not have catchy music. (laughs) If you're deeply offended and you love hymns, I'm not, sorry. (laughs) You're allowed to think differently than me. I also love hymns. I've just been hemmed out a little bit in my life. Um, So these groups get together, and in the groups, the men came, and then they brought their wives, and then they brought their kids, and then they brought their neighbors, and everybody joined together, and they actually transformed their lives. Like, they actually quit drinking and gambling and, like, hurting each other. They started being healed people crazy, right? So over the first few weeks and months, this kind of grew and grew and grew. And there were thousands of people that kind of got into this. And then for decades, it grew. And eventually it became this whole thing away from the Anglican church. And that's where we get Methodists, such as (laughs) Jarrett. Specifically, Jarrett came from this. (laughs) So to get a feel for like early days of Methodism, I just want you to picture like a group of people going up a mountain, but the trail is small. And so only one person can fit in a row, like single file. But it's like this. So the person in front always has a handout to someone ahead of them and behind them. When they need help, when the person beneath them needs help. And that sounds pretty great, right? Like if you need help, there's always someone to help you who's only one step ahead of you. And if you are feeling good, there's always someone behind you who is one step behind you. Not 17 steps behind you, like one step. If someone trips, you can go, like, ooh, gotcha. Oh, great. Um, The problem is that humans are involved. And so eventually the predictable thing happened, which is that, picture this. Just imagine one of these dudes 10 years later. He's a former coal miner. Okay. He is sober. He is clean. He is sanctified. Bless God. (laughs) He has been doing life well for a decade now. Okay? He no longer mistreats his wife. They have a great relationship, in fact. His kids love him. And he has progressed so far that he's actually teaching other people. Like, he's in charge of one of these groups, and he's, like, teaching them about God and the Bible. Until his teenage daughter, like, decides that what would be a wonderful thing is if she could date the coal miner who came in a month ago. And I do not mean in any way to, like, objectify relationships, but, like, he, he's gonna remember what he was like 10 years ago, right? And all the terrible things that he would do. And he doesn't want for his daughter to get involved with that, right? So probably the next meeting, he's gonna preach just a little bit harder against sin. And he's gonna be a little bit harsher. And we're gonna have a little bit more punishments whenever anyone makes a step out of line, right? And eventually, this harsh language, he's bound to either straighten people up or just get them to leave entirely, Because people with real human life and real human problems aren't welcome anymore. (laughs) Rachel just went. (laughs) I did that for the podcast because that was a great sound. So over time, it's going to chase all the sinners, quote unquote, away, right? And frankly, that's just as well. Right? Because this guy doesn't really remember. Like he remembers what it's like, but not like a step ago. Like it was so long ago. And pretty soon... The old climb up the hill is gone and there's a plateau and a canyon instead, right? Now the focus shifts from helping people make meaningful change in their life to just the younger converts who happen to be there, who just are not as zealous or interested as the older converts. I mean, none of us have ever been there, right? If you were born in church when your parents were like, you have to love this. And we're like, I mean, it's fine. (laughs) And they're like, no. God has saved your eternal soul. And you're like, it's fine. Like, I'd rather sleep. And they're like, definitely not. (laughs) You are getting up and you're going to church. Like, this is the whole dynamic, right, of people being funneled into this. And if you want to break from the pressure, the only option is to leave. Which gives you this. You have people up here. You have the religious on the top and the irreligious on the bottom. And neither of them like each other. And neither of them understand each other, and both of them just wish the other would just go away. And if someone down here actually says, God, I need help, get me out of here, God actually has no one to send. Because they're all up here, right? There's no one who will actually understand, or care, or mentor, or guide. Something <laughs> If you can't hear that on the podcast, something's talking. It's like, something went wrong. (laughs) Yes, it did. Amen. (laughs) Something went wrong. (laughs) No one is able to help them move because they don't know how. And also, it's not like the religious people on top are moving anymore anyways. They're just, it's not like they kept going up the mountain and just there's a break in the chain. No, they're just hanging out. They just pitch their tents or like built houses, I guess, I don't know, do y'all go camping? They like built houses on the plateau. Nobody's on a journey, everyone's just stuck in their status quo. And this hit the Methodists really hard and actually it hits like every revival movement really hard and because of what happened, this wonderful part of Methodism I think has been forgotten. But I wish it hadn't been forgotten because we're in a very similar situation. And this applies across the board, right? So this happened to the Methodists, it happened to the Pentecostals. And I get to pick on Pentecostals because I am a Pentecostal. So I get to, like, tell you how terrible they are. <laughs> but also, they're great, okay? Um, don't you judge me if you see me raising my hands because I like it. <laughs> so the Pentecostals, <laughs> when that thing started, they were, like, mind-blowing to everyone else. There were people, black and white people, in the same room next to each other, praising the Lord, which was not allowed, okay? This is like 1900. It wasn't allowed and they did not care. People got arrested because they didn't care. They were like, this is indecent. You can't have people of multiple races in the same room. Dumb idea. But like, <laughs> they, they did not care. They let, the women were lead, like half of the leadership at the beginning. They were the powerful voices, right? And it was this beautiful, crazy, very woo-woo, um, but also really emotional and intense and amazing thing that was happening. And then it got institutionalized. Mm. <laughs> and you know what happened? Everybody split up. The white people made the Assemblies of God. And the black people made the Church of God and the women slowly phased out of all the leadership, and now we have all these systems and all these rules because we've stopped going up the mountain together. We're just like, ah, it's been a couple years. You know what we should do? Build a machine so this can run without us. It literally happened in the church I came from. It was founded on principles of like everyone is welcome here and you do you and we'll do us and like this is we're gonna be cool we're gonna be cool y'all and then they weren't after like 12 years they were like we're not cool (laughs) we're not cool we can't we can't be cool if someone disagrees with us it's not cool we need to tell you we need to preach a little more harshly against sin and like luther and calvin when the protestant reformation happened they were like okay you can't be catholic anymore So instead, what you should believe is this intellectual system of Protestantism. But nobody created a new system of spiritual formation until the Wesleys. Have you ever wondered why things like daily devotions, quiet time, Bible studies are so important to the evangelical church? It's because of the Wesleys. Um, Getting together to discuss the Bible Like training these coal miners to focus on devotion to God and to their families, to have quiet time or prayer time with God instead of drinking and beating their wives. Like these are, these happen in a context, right? These are fundamental practices of how they moved people out of their situation into a better healed situation. And I don't mean to suggest that those things are not helpful. They are, right? Like meditation and prayer, much better choice than drowning your sorrows in anything. Um, Getting together with friends in a safe space to process faith, also a great thing. But they're not like the be-all, end-all of Christianity or discipleship. Like if you don't read your Bible every single day, you're not going to hell. Like that's not a thing. Like literally most of the world couldn't even read for most of church history. So what were they doing? Like God was like, I'm sorry. I know I saved you, but you did not read your Bible. And they're like, I can't read. And what's a Bible? <laughs> God's like, don't care. <laughs> this is the practice for everyone to do. These things came about in mass in the 1800s. And I think we're in a very parallel situation today because in the 20th century, like, what are we in now? The 21st century? 22nd second century? 21st century. <laughs> We've moved from this method to, to this. We have these people, and we have these people, and we have widespread spiritual complacency slash who cares? This is the mostly the attitude of everyone. I mean, who cares? We care deeply about the things we believe, but we don't really care deeply about the things we're actually doing. So in the 1970s, people were like, okay, this has got to stop. People need to shape up. They need to check themselves before they wreck themselves. Okay, we're going to make a new thing. And... They developed this spiritual formation system among conservatives based on the Methodist practices, now that they would admit that's where it came from, of quiet time and Bible studies and fill-in-the-blank discipleship guides and classes and curriculum and revivals and retreats and conferences. Raise your hand if you've been to a church conference. Oh, yes. 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 <laughs> This has a very modern goal. We are like, oh, we're so postmodern. No, we're not, okay? We, what we want to do, the whole goal of this was to put forward a basic systematic theology based on the entirely modern notion that right thinking equals right behavior. Does it, though? <laughs> More Bible knowledge equals better Christians. Does it, though? knowledge equals power that one i kind of agree with but like clearly not because they still won't let women talk so it doesn't matter how much you know what we have found sadly is that these systematic theologies and these by more biblical knowledge and like being the fastest at sword drills in your sunday school class I was. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You can come talk to me in my honorship at the end of service if you'd like to know how to do sword drills faster. I'm going to put that on my tombstone. It didn't actually produce any personal transformation. Maybe not any. That's a little harsh. It didn't actually produce much personal transformation. And because there wasn't much personal transformation, we had to have more events we had to host concerts and retreats and youth conferences where people's emotions will get moved and they will just feel badly about their complacency and they will recommit their lives to God and then they'll feel transformed for a few weeks but then they'll quickly go back to normal life until the fall, you know, when we go to the next big event like Winter Jam and it will change our souls forever, at least, you know, for that one night. And then on top of those things, we also added short-term mission trips. Oh yes, you stick with me. We are going here okay? We have added short-term mission trips so we could go see how sad and miserable other people are, and we can feel thankful for how privileged we are, and we will somehow connect us to God again forever, or at least until normal life takes over in a couple months. And we must especially send our teenagers on these trips so they can know what little snots they are and how lucky they are to have all the things that they have in their life and so they can have this life-transforming experience that will, you guessed it, connect them to God forever, or at least for a few months until normal life takes over and we just continue the cycle. I know I'm being a little bit harsh. I get it. Okay, so two things. First of all, if in your head you are really loudly being like, Amen, and having it out with the evangelicals, about their stupid short-term missions trips and their stupid revival conferences and their stupid Bible verse memorization plans, take a breath, (laughs) slow down, okay, it's not all bad. Some people have really wonderful, amazing experiences in that system. And some people needed to be in that system to get where they are today. And if you're feeling very offended (laughs) with progressives because we are just throwing the baby out (laughs) with the bathwater, Take a breath and slow down, because it's not all good either, right? Like some people have really harmful, terrible experiences in that system, in that theological system, and it's caused them an incredible amount of church trauma that we're still recovering from today. The system is imploding. Just like the Methodist system imploded and the Pentecostal system imploded and the specific church system imploded because it creates this false dichotomy where some people are up here and some people are down here and no one is talking to each other. And people are still searching. We still haven't found the answer, right? And now the coin is flicked because guess where people are going? They're leaving the evangelical church and they're going back to Catholic and medieval practices of like contemplation. Contempl- I was going to say practices of contemplative. Let's not... <laughs> <laughs> Let me slow down. <laughs> Why do you think the most affirming and like inclusive churches are liturgical? One reason commonly given is because they've been around long enough to get their act together, which I do agree with, except if that were true, the Catholic church would be affirming because they have been around the longest, longer than any other church. In fact, Um, But the second reason people are leaving is because they're looking for something deeper. They're looking for something wider and more expansive. Like they're going back to liturgy and contemplative practices to connect with God beyond the system of consumerism that we have built. And I think that search is like in its infancy because we are truly addicted to modernism. We are truly addicted to finding the right answer. the the knowledge that will fix us, the thing that will solve our problems. And we can't resist the pressures of our culture and consumerism. It's impossible. But I hope we can make like a new Methodism, a new Methodism that is really the old Methodism. We're not, there's nothing new under the sun. But like a way that focuses not on fill-in-the-blank answers for every situation, but on questions that make us think and reflect and take stock and pay attention to what's going on in our souls. That we will actually see discipleship as the process of reaching up with one hand to find someone who is one step further on the journey than you, and reaching back with your other hand to help someone who is one step behind you. I take this very seriously because really, the question becomes, well, what are we gonna do in 10 years? (laughs) Get old and stuffy (laughs) and make some rules and then kick everyone out? Because, I mean, clearly it's a pretty common thing. It happens all the time. It happens to most people. So how are we going to not do that? We are not going to do that by doing it together. And also, like when we started Different Church, we just decided that Different Church should exist and some people agreed and so we made it happen. Um, there is no overarching anything above me. Like, at the board, I guess. But like, there's no denomination. There's no high church. There's no like pope. There's no... I'm the pope. <laughs> I should have dressed up as a pope today. That's kind of, that's kind of sacrilegious. I won't do that. Um, there's no one, like, telling us what to do except us, which is great and dangerous. Right? Because I actually don't know everything. <laughs> In fact, sometimes I cannot even put a sentence together, as you just saw. So, ha- like... How are we supposed to move forward if there's no one ahead of me? Right? Because I don't know everything. I can't know everything. And honestly, that's not even my goal. My goal is to have more fun in life. So after Pride last year, I started a meetup of progressive pastors. Not because I wanted to make an organization. Honestly, not very organized. You probably don't want me, like, doing your things. But there's – so we we meet once a month, literally because – we have no one else to talk to. <laughs> there's a person, there's Adam from Circle of Faith Church, which is an American Baptist church. There is Jen from Good Samaritan Church in Pinellas Park. It's like the OG affirming church in Pinellas County. There is someone from First Presbyterian downtown. There's a pastor from Tampa. It's a Lutheran church. And there is someone else. Oh, there's an independent church, um, the, one of the pastors at Christ the Cornerstone church. And we just get together every month and we're like, "Hey, let's not do this alone so we don't tank our churches." <laughs> and I'm like, "Yes, you should pat me on the back for this, okay, for having such amazing foresight and intellectual stability to know that I need no. You should say, "Obviously, this is what we should be doing." Right? There is no scenario where I can tell you the answer to everything. There is no scenario where you can tell someone else the answer to everything, it doesn't work. And the minute it works, the minute the person up here on the journey is trying to help the person way down here who just barely dipped a toe in, it's gonna come out a little harsh. It's gonna come out more like, just stop it. (laughs) Which, you know, that works. Everyone's totally changed their mind on things by being yelled at, right? We all know this from the 2016 election. (laughs) You all changed your minds because you got yelled at, right? (laughs) that was a long tangent. Let's look at my notes and see where I am. (laughs) Okay. I just want you to know, I think about this deeply and I don't want to, I don't want this to happen here. Okay. When you have my word that I will do my very best to make sure it does not happen here, but also it's on you too. You have to be doing this. We people, we the people with a Bible background have been handed the truly modern idea, that's why I said we're addicted to modernism, that there is some perfect all-knowing reading of the Bible somewhere if you just had enough time and attention and study. But actually that's not our goal. The goal is not to finish. The goal is not to be right. It's to hear the music and dance with it. You read the Bible and then it reads you. And then you're like, oh, don't like that. And then you read it, and then the Bible's like, hey. And you're like, nope, don't like that either. (laughs) What do you mean I have to change my life? Can you answer this for me so I can move on? Is not a good question. Because we are, we're barely going to scratch the surface. With all of our study and our singing and our prayers and our get-togethers and our celebrations, we will barely scratch the surface. And that's not depressing, that's a good thing. Knowing that we won't ever get all or even most of the answers takes the pressure off of our shoulders. What we get as a people of faith is not answers. It's life. And life more fully, which is biblical. John 10.10 says this in the Amplified Translation, the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. And I come that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance, to the full, till it overflows. And common evangelical interpretations of the thief in this verse is be like, it's obviously the devil. But if you look at that verse in context, you will notice that Jesus has been talking to and about the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Is it possible that Jesus was saying that tightly structured, rigid, rule-based theology and the people that promote it are the ones who are stealing the joy from faith and life. Is it possible that in our own context, the things that have taken the joy and abundance and life out of our faith have been the harmful systems of evangelicalism and other church systems that have in trying to so tightly control everything, actually stolen and killed and destroyed our faith? And even further, is it possible that we ourselves have been the ones who have willingly and knowingly participated in pointing the finger in these systems? So even though we want to be like, "Mm, you, right? Even though we wanna like rage and shout and, there's still fingers pointing back at us, inviting us to pause and examine our own hearts where we still have healing to do the goal is not to be right it's to hear the music of faith and god and each other and dance to it sometimes you will step on toes sometimes you will be perfectly in sync right sometimes you will be just bursting with emotion and energy and you will be the ones that people are watching from the sidelines they're like wow it's so beautiful and sometimes we'll be the ones who are exhausted and we step on each other, and we have to go to the sidelines for a breather. We have to go on this journey and participate in this stance with one arm forward and one arm back. If we don't reach forward to someone who is further down the path than us, we will not have anyone to help us up when we stumble or help us repair when we've done harm. And if we don't reach back for others who are starting on their journey, we will fail. Spectacularly, just like all the other systems have failed, our orthodoxy, our right belief, will lose its orthopraxy, our right practice, our right actions, which will eventually make us ungenerous and close-minded and not even orthodox to begin with. If we don't reach forward and back, then we're going to be in danger of what Jesus was warning about, being the ones who steal and kill and destroy the faith of other people. But if we can stand together, with open arms, then we will have and enjoy our life and faith. We will have it and each other to abundance, to the full, till it overflows.